Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast, episode 56, titled Religious Appropriation, Parenting Through Deconstruction, Revelation, and the Politics of a Pandemic. (laughs) How's that for a podcast title? Um, It's actually the fourth installment of responding to your questions. So you are the ones who uh, indirectly came up with the title. And this is the first installment of responding to your questions for season three. So thank you for sending in your questions um, through email and Instagram and Facebook. I always enjoy these episodes because it causes me to think about and address things I normally wouldn't address. So so thank you for that. Um, I'm recording today at home. Um, so many of us find ourselves at home more um, than we ever have been, working from home and, and things like that. So I point that out because there'll probably be background noise, interruptions. I'm not going to take all this time to edit things out. Um, I already know I won't record this in one sitting like I normally do. My uh, three kids are upstairs right now at school, which means they're around sitting at our dining room table around their computers and doing uh, online learning. So with that said, Uh, Let's jump in with your questions. The first question uh, is, how do Gentiles or non-Jewish people continue to learn from our Jewish friends and find balance without cultural or religious appropriation or offense? So how do we learn from from our Jewish friends and do it without offense and do it without religious appropriation? So when this question came through, I was thrilled because if you've listened to any of my teaching or uh, other podcasts, you know that when it comes to the sacred text and the Christian faith, I love historical and religious background and context. And there's so much to learn. It's such a deep and wide stream. And every time I learn more, I realize like I'm just scratching the surface. So with regard to the specific question, um, a couple of thoughts. Uh, about how do we learn and how do we do it without appropriation or offense. And I would say first, it's helpful to remember that when it comes to the Christian faith, um, it grew from the Jewish tradition. There's actually nothing um, in in the Gospels to suggest that Jesus came to start a new religion. Uh, Jesus was was thoroughly Jewish, and he was up to something, that's for sure. But I think he what he was... And I talked about this before on a um, former episode. Jesus saw religion as a vehicle to get us to the vision, as a way for for us to experience union with God. And Jesus's problem with um, with some of the religious of his day was that religion was getting in the way of people experiencing union with God. So when we talk about the Christian faith and we talk like it grew from the Jewish tradition, it's really important to remember. Um, that there was a lot that happened that um, gave birth to this new expression that we now call Christianity. And I point that out because when we think about the Christian faith, when we think about our sacred text, for example, um, what's commonly called the Old Testament, that's what uh, we call it in the Christian tradition, well, those are the Hebrew scriptures, which is the sacred text for people of Jewish faith. And what we call the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, um, well, all the authors of the New Testament or the Christian scriptures were Jewish, except for one, um, and that's for those who believe Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, to be a Gentile. And, and I point this out because I often say of the Bible, hey, this is not our book, meaning this is not, this is not the book. This book did not come from uh, white, modern, Western thinkers, um, 
in addition to it being written by Jewish authors, it was also written in the ancient Near East. We are modern Westerners. It was written from the underside of power, especially the New Testament. And we live in our part of the empire. In other words, like when I think about myself, if I place myself into the sacred text, I am a Roman soldier. I am a Babylonian who is laying siege to Jerusalem. Like we're a part of the global military superpower. That's where we are. And just these facts alone ought to give us some humility when approaching this book. Another thing to keep in mind when we speak about learning from our Jewish friends is that Judaism in the ancient world and Judaism today um, is not monolithic. Like it's not just one religion. Um, Think about like Christianity. You could say to somebody, I'm a Christian. That might mean you're Catholic. It might mean you're Episcopalian. It might mean you're Baptist. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Baptists aren't. Nope. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I I grew up, by the way, uh, around Baptists. I went to a Baptist high school, Baptist college. So they're like family. I can can mock them. Um, But there's all sorts of small T traditions or sects within uh, Christianity. And so when you think about Judaism, it's the same way. It's not monolithic. And that was, uh, that's the same today as it was in Jesus's day. Um, there were all sorts of like different um, small T traditions within there that reflected and still reflect varied viewpoints, different beliefs, um, different doctrine, and so on. And I point this out because when we talk about learning from our Jewish friends, um, I've often heard people say things like, well, you know, in Jesus's day, the Jews believed Um, but like, no, 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 not all of them believe the same thing. One quick example is you have the Sadducees who were one sect within Judaism and you have the Pharisees who were another sect within Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees believed in a coming resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And so you have just right there, one example of their differing opinions, which by the way, even makes it more interesting when you see in the Gospels that the Pharisees and Sadducees, who did not agree on most things, would come and test Jesus together. There's all sorts of layers there of stuff going on. Anyway, um, there was not one way of thinking, not at all. There were multiple ways of thinking, as there are today within the, the Jewish faith, this beautiful tradition. So with all of that in mind, when it comes to learning from the Jewish tradition, we do need to do so in a way that seeks to truly learn. Um, And for me, the evidence of learning is, I think, transformation, a change in thinking. Uh, Evidence of learning is a change in in behavior, a change in the way uh, that we act. And I've seen some who take, uh, I point this out because I've seen some who take Jewish teaching or Jewish tradition or Jewish beliefs, and rather than letting it work us or work on us or inform us and change us, Um, they take this Jewish wisdom and they bend it or shape it to fit their Christian belief. And I don't think that's healthy or respectful, which is, I think, what the question's about. Um, Jewish wisdom stands on its own. It always has. Um, Long before Christianity ever came around, Jewish wisdom was standing on its own. And I think we need to respect that and allow it to remain the way that it's always been. Um, And here's what I mean. I know some people who are not Jewish, meaning religiously or ethnically, um, people who actually grew up 
in the Christian tradition, in a Christian tradition, who've adopted like parts of the Jewish faith that suit them. I'll say it that way. So for example, they will adopt some of the rules of Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. There's 613 commands in Torah. Um, And so they'll adopt some of the rules that are in Torah. For example, um, Sabbath. They'll say, I'm going to celebrate Sabbath. They'll say, I'm going to celebrate the feasts which are um, the, the, fe- the high holy days, the festivals within Judaism. Uh, but then they'll ignore other things that are in Torah. So they'll kind of like take a few things and say, yep, this, this works. And um, th- another example would be they'll eat kosher, except they're not really eating kosher. It just means they're not going to eat pork products or shellfish. Um, so, so they'll kind of take things here and there um, And what they choose is interesting because what they do is they make everything that they choose within, from the Jewish tradition about Jesus. And they say like, oh, this is a reflection of Jesus or meaning the Messiah, uh, the the coming King. The interesting thing is, is if you speak with Jewish people, they'll tell you that the things others are are picking up and choosing and saying point to Jesus, like that has nothing to do with the Messiah. And so they're bending and shaping certain pieces of the Jewish tradition to fit their, I guess I would say, preference or uh, their religious expression. And I, I, don't, I don't think that that's healthy. And that's what I mean about reshaping the Jewish faith to fit into one's particular paradigm. We can learn so much, and I have learned and continue to learn so much from my Jewish friends, from the Jewish tradition, without it having to be reshaped. Um, and by the way, in my experience, my Jewish friends are always up for talking, sharing, listening, debating. Um, it's wonderful. And what's interesting is that many of my Jewish friends are actually not interested in converting anybody. They're not interested in me taking on any kind of Jewish tradition or kosher eating or any of that. Um, rather their hope is, is that you and me or any of us, that we would just be good God-fearing Gentiles. And maybe that's the first lesson we should learn from them. Um, maybe as we think about what can we learn or how do we learn, the first lesson is this, be a good Christian, be a good God-fearing Gentile, live your life well. Um, th- this is such a posture of respect in honoring other traditions that I've experience from many of my Jewish friends. Um, and my hope is, is that we would adopt that kind of attitude more. So let's, let's learn, seek to learn from the Jewish wisdom as Jewish wisdom, not Jewish wisdom that we have to filter through Christianity and somehow make it work and point to Jesus, but simply learning from it, uh, respecting the tradition for what it has long been, respecting the tradition for the, the, the fact that it gave birth to Christianity. Um, and and honoring our Jewish friends by not, I don't know, adopting just parts of their religion that uh, that we like. So anyway, enough on that one. Uh, second question: Is Revelation unfolding now? This is a reference to the Book of Revelation, the last book in the Christian Scriptures. Is Revelation unfolding now? What would Christ returning look like? Now I have to say, uh, the Book of Revelation is an incredibly bizarre book. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, it, it's, it's really bizarre. I mean, there's horses of different colors, gods, dragons, babies wielding scepters, 
women getting flown away and up by an eagle. I mean, there's bowls of wrath. There's seals, like not like the animal, um, like seven seals on a scroll. Um, so, you know, like pretty normal everyday piece of literature. Um, and because it's so bizarre, it's been the subject of speculation and all kinds of interpretations and ideas and readings. And I am by no means an expert or any kind of authority on this curious book or um, any book, whether in the Bible or outside the Bible. That's important to say. I'm not an expert on any of them. Um, But there are a few ideas that might be helpful for us when we ask the question, is Revelation unfolding now? And what would Christ returning look like? Um, So one of the things about the book of Revelation is... Some believe it's a prophecy about how the world will end. And that makes sense, actually, because the, uh, well, for two reasons. First, Revelation begins with these words. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So that's how it begins, talking about prophecy, and it ends with visions of of this like new world, this life to come, heaven um, coming down to earth, people being judged, Satan and his angels getting tossed in the lake of fire. So. It totally makes sense that we would, um, some believe that this is a book of prophecy about the end of the world and about how things are going to end. But it's also helpful to remember that we are reading an ancient apocalyptic book. We're reading ancient apocalyptic literature, which is odd for us because we don't come across this sort of literature uh, or this genre in our time and culture. But this genre um, and this style in in its day um, makes strong use of hyperbole, um, constant use of metaphor and symbol and allusion. It's mythic in the way that it it, um, speaks, not in the sense that it's a lie, but myth is that which is always true. It speaks towards a larger truth. Um, It's poetic in the sense that it's not literal. Um, like when I talked about the horses that are of different colors, um, these are all like some sort of vision, ecstatic vision that John had as, as it talks about at the beginning of the book. So it's not literal, it's poetic. And in the context of its writing and its date and time and place and circumstance, some believe not that this is a prophecy about the way the world will end, but that this is actually a prophecy about the Roman empire. Uh, And I said in the last episode that the word apocalypse uh, is a revealing, it's a revelation. Apocalypse is laying things bare, showing what has been there the whole time, Uh, which is interesting because the name of the book, uh, Revelation, says it's revealing something. And in this case, um, historically speaking, what it's exposing is the Roman Empire. And I don't mind, by the way, saying I'm of that opinion. I do not believe that this is a book about how everything is going um, to end. Um, it, that might be there, but I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it's really pointing toward the Roman Empire. And, and here, by the way, are a few reasons I say that. Here's a few tidbits. John 
begins this book, uh, John is the traditional writer, um, sharing a vision of his interaction with Jesus, and he describes what Jesus looks like. And Jesus is telling John, you have to write letters to the seven churches in, uh, in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor was steeped in imperial worship, which is the worship both of the emperor and kind of had a combination worship of Rome, the goddess Roma. Um, and it had been going on in Asia Minor for over 100 years. Three of the seven cities were temple wardens, meaning that they were in charge of ensuring that the emperor or Caesar was always venerated, was always worshipped, was always respected as a god. Um, And these cities were dedicated to Caesar, which means you saw images of Caesar everywhere. Um, And the images of Caesar were him wearing a robe with a sash, wielding a Roman sword, sitting on a throne. Caesar often had seven stars, which sounds tremendously like the figure that John encounters in Revelation 1. I don't think that that's coincidental. Um, The letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are filled with allusions to historic events that had already unfolded in those cities. Um, Here's an example. Uh, There's a letter to the church in Philadelphia that says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it, leave the temple. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Now, the city of Philadelphia um, was raised by a great earthquake in 17 AD or CE, depending on how you, what initials you put there. Um, and the aftershocks kept knocking buildings down that were rebuilt. So you had the initial massive earthquake and then people would try to rebuild and aftershocks would come and more stones would fall and buildings would fall and people were dying. And so the historian Strabo tells us um, that there was an era in which the city was largely uninhabited. And for those who did live there, they lived outside the city in tents or huts, like just real primitive style of living. Um, But they did not live in the buildings because they were afraid they would fall on them. Eventually, the city was rebuilt by Emperor Tiberius. He financed the rebuilding. And in um, honor of Tiberius, the city was renamed Neo-Caesarea. And it kept this name until the reign of Vespasian, which was around 70 AD, so maybe 20 to 25 years before Revelation was written. And to honor him, it took on another name, and at that point it was called Flavia. Now, think about this. The angel says to the church in a city where the buildings have fallen down and they can't stay in them anymore, in a city that's been renamed uh, in honor of and by the emperors, he says, you won't have to leave the building that I build and the city that you're living in, I'm going to rename it. I mean, there's all sorts of illusions and layers there. Here's another one, by the way. I could go on on this all day. Um, Oh, Revelation chapter six. Here we go. I'm looking at my notes. I I got all excited. I looked away. Um, In Revelation chapter six, there's the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and a pale horse, it says, which actually is the color green. Uh, It's the Greek word from which we get chlorophyll, the green horse. And then Hades follows behind the rider on the green horse. And then there's a scroll and there's seven seals on it. And I mean, it's just this insane picture where people are like, cheering and we, I mean, like asking questions. Um, And some suggest this is a parody of the advent of Caesar, 
which is exactly what would happen upon return from a military campaign. Others suggest it was a reference to the parousia. Now, the parousia, some say, is the second coming of Christ. So, like, the question was asked, what does it look like when Jesus returns? Um, the parousia is what's refer is what we the, the Greek word that we use to often refer to uh, the return of Jesus. But in the Roman world, the the word uh, parousia referred to a state visit of the emperor to a city. And so when you begin in Revelation chapter six, and there's this whole parade happening before the king comes in, you begin to recognize like this all makes sense when we consider um, that this had to make sense to the original readers. For the original readers, they knew something about their culture, just like all of us do. And so when they're reading all of these things, they begin to see this clear historic illusion, this connection between the world they're living in and the words that are being read aloud. And so when, when this book is taken as something pointing toward today's world and events, we stand to miss something because it had to have made sense to the original readers. And some who believe it's about today pay very little attention to the historic backdrop of the book. Um, I actually recently... Uh, preached from Revelation, and I got an email from somebody who was like, the idea that you think this is connected to the Roman Empire is, is you know, I think they said asinine <laughs> was the actual word. But think about it. It had to make sense to people when they read it. So if we say it's only about the future, which is often what happens, well, then we miss the context in the day in which it was written. By the way, if you're interested in the backdrop of the book of Revelation, a great place to start, there's two books, um, Roland Worth, R-O-L-A-N-D, Worth, W-O-R-T-H. Roland Worth has a book called The Seven Cities of the Apocalypse in Roman Culture, which lays out all sorts of fascinating things. And then there's another one, it's a classic by William Ramsey, and it's The Letters to the Seven Churches. Um, both of those books dive deep into the historic context of what's happening. So with all of that, man, I see, I told you earlier, I love, <laughs> I love historic background. Um, with all of that, is Revelation unfolding now? And what about Christ's return? And so maybe another way of asking that is this. If, if Revelation is the revealing of things, that the apocalypse is things laid bare, maybe we could ask, um, what is being revealed? Or maybe we could say it this way, what sort of revelation is unfolding now? And I say that because it invites us to reflect and to consider and to listen and to observe our moment that we're living through right now, just like the writer of Revelation did. The writer of Revelation obviously knew his world, his culture, the Roman Empire incredibly well to be able to write something like he wrote. So what's, what is being revealed now? What sort of revelation is unfolding now? Um, and if, if we were going to write a parody of our times, think about it like this way, what things would we include? In what ways would we describe the kingdom of God breaking through and into spaces and places in our moment and in our culture? How would we describe the United States? How would we talk about this pandemic um, if we're going to write in this kind of like apocalyptic way where we're going to use hyperbole and symbol and poetry. And you might be like, whoa, 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 wait. Um, okay, I get that. But the question is, is revelation unfolding now? So like <laughs> with regard to events and places and times and the pandemic, like um, 
it, that's what the question's about. And I would say with regard to all of that, it's really fascinating to me that the disciples ask Jesus, like he goes on this whole kind of apocalyptic sermon. And then they're like, when is this going to happen? And Jesus is like, I don't know. I don't know. The angels don't know. He's like, the only one who knows is God in heaven. Uh, And then in Acts chapter one, Jesus says, it's actually not for you to know the time and the date that's set by God in heaven. Um, Instead, the Spirit's going to come on you in power so that you can get to work. Um, And and so it's really, I find that really fascinating that Jesus doesn't seem, he doesn't even entertain the question at all. And he even says, I don't know. And because I don't know, you shouldn't worry about it. It's not for you to know, he actually says. So like when it comes to the end times, as as, as it's been called, uh, or the return of Christ, I I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, and I say that, um, with great confidence because you know, who else doesn't know Jesus? (laughs) Um, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of theories and a good deal of speculation. I've actually told people that, um, when it comes to end times theology, it's called eschatology and within certain, um, parts of Christianity, they refer to the millennium. So there's like people who, depending on the order of things that they believe in, they have the pre-millennial, then you have the post-millennial, then you have the ah-millennial who are like, there is no millennium, it's just this figure of speech. And I, one time someone said to me, was like really pressing me on what, what is your, what are your beliefs in the end times? And I said, I was a pan-millennial and they're like, oh, I've never heard of a pan-millennial. I'm like, yeah, I just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Um, Because I don't know. And that's not to diminish people who are interested in this thing. I just think... Jesus said he didn't know, we should probably trust that. And maybe we could ask more questions about the ways in which Christ is breaking into our hearts and minds right now. Maybe we should ask questions about what's being revealed right now. Maybe we should ask, how am I seeing Christ come in my own life? How am I seeing Christ come in the world in which we live? Um, And maybe, uh, maybe if we welcome this, maybe we'll begin to see these things happening now. Um, maybe we'll begin to see a revelation happening in our world. Um, so I'm just thinking out loud, but it is interesting that Jesus did say, the kingdom of heaven is not going to come by your careful observation, but the kingdom of heaven is within you. And Richard Rohr suggests that the second coming of Christ is this, uh, we are, he would say, are the second coming of Christ, the body of Christ, that, that whenever there's this union between the divine and the human uh, whenever there's this union that we see in the historical Jesus of the, of the physical and the spiritual, that that is where Christ is. It's a really fascinating viewpoint. But anyway, I'm thinking out loud at this point. Um, but yeah, so that's some thoughts on Revelation and the return of Jesus. Uh, let's see here. How do we parent through deconstruction? Yes, this is, by the way, the most common question I get these days. Um, and it's important to say... I, I've purposed never to give parenting advice, ever. I really, truly don't. And I don't give parenting advice, not because I don't think it's important, um, but because I, have ki- <laughs> because I have kids. And parenting is the most difficult thing um, I've ever engaged in in my life. And as a parent, what I've realized is that, there, yes, there are some principles for parenting that can be, can be and are incredibly helpful, um, but you also have, like, every kid is different. And so what works with one kid 
are not going to work with for another kid. And um, so with that said, when it comes to how do we parent, it's the most common question I get. Um, and just know if you're asking that question, you're not alone um, because everyone seems to be asking it. And I'm happy to say um, I do have an answer to how do we parent through deconstruction. That is, my answer is this, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I really don't. Um, but I do have some thoughts uh, with regard to parenting through deconstruction. And it's actually not advice. Maybe it is, maybe I'm breaking my own rule. Um, but the the thoughts I have begin with a quote from the theologian Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorites, by the way. Um, and he says, questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. Let me say that again. Questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. And I start here because many times when I'm asking myself the question, how do we parent through deconstruction? Many times when uh, I'm asked this question by parents or by caregivers, um, we are thinking about uh, how do we implement something for our kids? Um, And this is how many of us start there. And there's questions like, well, what do we teach our kids? What are our kids going to have to unlearn? How do we talk about our faith? These are all questions of how do we implement parenting? Like, how do we implement teaching our faith? And Brueggemann would say, no, 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 those questions are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. And I I point that out because it's possible, um, while those questions are important, there might be more helpful questions to ask first. Questions like, what kind of adults do we want our kids to be? Uh, What do we want our children to care about? What do we want our kids to be about? Like if someone's hanging out with them, what are they going to say about this child or teenager or later adult? What do we want our children to know? Uh, How do we want our children to think? And we can make a list, by the way, and maybe that's where we ought to begin. Maybe if you're listening, you... um, Maybe you begin writing some of this stuff down. Maybe it's like you're writing a vision, a preferred picture of the future for your kids. Um, and this question is often asked because we know that we don't want to give our kids all the stuff we were given. We don't want to teach them all the things we were taught. We don't want them to learn all the things we have had to unlearn. Um, and that's a start, by the way. But it is a difficult question to answer because many of us keep thinking about parenting from the place of what we don't want, which is, by the way, it's fine and it's normal. But let me ask, what do you want? Like when you imagine a picture of your kids or your child 15 years down the road, what does that picture look like? And by the way, I'm not sure what inspired Walter Brueggemann to write that quote, but it touches on something incredibly important that our culture has largely ignored, and that is imagination. I, I actually, um, it reminds me of the SpongeBob episode. I don't know if you're any SpongeBob fans out there when they have a whole episode about imagination. <laughs> it's funny because our culture, we're largely ignorant uh, when it comes to um, imagination. We are a thinking culture. Most of what we do is dominated by thinking, but it's important that, to know that thinking is only one way of knowing things. Uh, Stephen Gallegos talks about the four windows or the four ways of knowing, thinking, sensing, feeling, and imagery. 
And um, he bases this for, off of Carl Jung, who didn't say imagery, but said intuition is another way of knowing. But Gallegos understands this uh, as, imag- as image or imagination or imagery. And he writes this. He says, imagery is the primary mode of knowing totalities. It emanates from the whole and refers to the whole. Feeling is a mode of knowing energies and movement, motion and emotion. It is the knowing that energizes our action and reaction. Thinking is a mode of knowing that involves dissecting, labeling, comparing, categorizing, and linking parts to one another, particularly for the purpose of creating maps and stories. Sensing is a mode of knowing the environment, the outer, the external, or objective. Now, when you hear that paragraph, which I understand super thick, but when you hear him talk about thinking, he says it involves dissecting, labeling, comparing, categorizing, linking parts to one another, particularly for the purpose of creating maps and stories. This is the dominant way of thinking in our world. We have a harder time understanding what he means by imagery Um, or imagination being the primary mode of knowing totalities. It emanates from the whole and refers to the whole. We're like, what what does that mean? And the fact that we struggle to understand that meaning points to the fact that thinking has long dominated our culture. As a culture, we've largely left out not only imagination, by the way, but also thinking, or I'm sorry, feeling. Um, And our brains go right to thinking, right to implementing. So when we ask the question, like, how do I parent through deconstruction? we're immediately going to, how can I talk to my kids about my faith when it feels like my faith is unraveling? That is a thinking question. To say, I want to imagine what my kid might be like when they're 30, or I want to, uh, I have a hope for who they're going to become. That's an imagination question. And so think about it this way. What if we had to write a biography about our child when they were age 35? Imagine like you, you, I don't know how old your kids are, but like for me, I, I fast forward 20 years for one of my daughters and I have to write her biography um, when she's 35 years old. What am I hoping to include in that? Besides the fact that like my wife and I have done pretty well parenting, right? Like what, if I'm writing about her, what do I want to write when she's 35? What are my hopes for her? What do I want for her? Um, of course, by the way, we're going to write according to who we know them to be, um, and healthy parenting would want the best for them, not for us. But all of this is imagination. It, it's imagining what we want for our kids. It also, by the way, involves feeling. Those things that we don't just, like those things that we know or that we feel in our bones, those things that we're certain of, but all the things that can't be proven or seen, like when you say like, I know this to be true, well, you can't prove it. You know it. It's deep inside of you. Again, this has largely been lost in our culture because our culture has said like, if you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. If you can't prove it, it's not true. Um, but there's things that we know um, deep in our bones that we can't prove. And so when we think about our kids, um, we need to use our imagination and our feeling because what I want for each of my kids is different. Um, can I explain to you exactly why what I want for my kids is different? No, but I, I just know, (laughs) Uh, I feel it in my bones and I know, uh, that what I want is different because I know each of them. And and so maybe a, a helpful starting point, um, 
when it comes to how do we parent through deconstruction is to start with feeling and imagining. Um, and once we have a sense of that, once we have the, the vision is imagined, then we can begin to talk about implementation. Like for me, I want my kids to know they are loved no matter what. Um, I want grace to be their mother tongue. I want for them to see beauty and sacredness in every single human being they come across. I want them to be generous. I want them to be compassionate. I want them to live beyond themselves. I want them to see their connectedness to this earth, to this universe. From dust they have come to dust they will return. And I want them to live with humility because of that. Uh, I want them to laugh, like really good laughter from deep places. Um, I want them to be able to laugh at themselves. I want them to be able to laugh at this, this crazy world we're living in. Um, and I want them to be filled with awe and wonder at the glory of existence. I want them to be tender. Uh, I want them to be fierce in the way they fight for themselves and for others and for justice. I want them to love like Jesus. Uh, I want them to see the mystery of the union between the spiritual and the physical and to know that every square inch of the universe they inhabit is sacred. And I mean, I could keep going, by the way. I'm just riffing here. And even as I'm imagining what kind of adults they can be, what my hopes for, like I'm finding myself getting emotional and all of a sudden I'm in my head, I'm feeling something now, right? And now I'm like, okay, how, how, do, I, how do I help them get there? How do I send them uh, in that direction? So it's not just placing ideas on our kids. Uh, it's not just teaching them like a set of different things because it's possible that whatever we teach our kids, they're going to have to unlearn, (laughs) they're going to have to unlearn it or relearn it for themselves anyway. Um, but this involves getting to know kids and then sending them in the direction of their true selves, which by the way, many scholars argue that's the meaning of the verse, train up a child in the way they should go. Um, and many people are like, train up a child in the way they should go. Right. Okay. So we have the right way. And we will send the child according to that way, which by the way, doesn't work. Can we just be honest about that? I mean, I grew up going to Christian schools, Christian colleges, and the number of people who like face planted, even though they were trained up in the way they should go. Um, what's lost in translation in the Hebrew is that it's train a child according to the child's way, which is a very interesting thing to think about. Train a child according to the child's way. Ellen Davis, who's a scholar, wrote this Uh, regarding this verse. She said, the child is not formless clay to be shaped entirely according to the teacher's or parent's own pre-established views. Educating each child according to her own way means that we must relax our theories and pay attention to this particular child. Adjust our methods to the way in which she may best learn. Nurture her particular gifts. Respect her interests This saying is an oblique acknowledgement that the child herself has some incipient wisdom. Yes! So the idea is, as you get to know your kids and you begin to see their personality come out, you begin to see their gifts manifest, the the joy of parenting and the difficulty of parenting is how do I, like now that I begin to have a vision for who they could be, how do I begin helping them toward that preferred picture of the future? And as we sort through this, 
getting to know our kids and this imagination and feeling and all these other things, then, then after all of that, we can begin to talk about plans or strategies or implementation. Um, because now we can imagine what this could look like. And now only after, what do we do to help send them in the direction of our imagination? And by the way, this is an ongoing process. Um, and here's one more thought, and maybe this is what I do know. I don't, I said earlier, I have no idea. Um, parents and caregivers um, who are asking this question, uh, how do I parent through deconstruction? They still care about the Christian faith. I haven't met anyone who's like just uh, bailed on the whole Christian enterprise who's asking this question. Um, the, these questions come from people who care about their faith, even in the midst of deconstruction, by the way. Um, and that's one of the reasons we're still in it and still deconstructing. Um, which brings me back to the four windows of knowing that I talked about just a couple minutes ago. Um, Stephen Gallego says that we come into this world understanding all four windows, thinking, uh, feeling, sensing, and imagination. And he says, but because of our culture, we suppress feeling and imagination. But one of the things that I find fascinating, among (laughs) other things about Jesus, is Jesus did not suppress imagination at all. And he did not suppress feeling at all. Um, We just think he did because we approach the Gospels with our thinking window wide open and the others largely shut. But think about this. Jesus was a teacher. This is what rabbi means, that he was a teacher. And when you think about the teaching that's recorded in the Gospels, it is vague, it is not very directive, and it's filled with questions. If you look at Jesus' teaching, he's never like, all right, so today uh, we're going to have three points to my sermon. They're all going to begin with the letter P. We're going to talk about pride and prejudice, which (laughs) that's actually its own story. Um, Like Jesus doesn't give three points in a poem. What does Jesus do when he's teaching? He tells stories. He tells all kinds of stories. And Jesus uses what? He uses images. What what does he say? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is plowing his field. That's it. He's asking people to picture this. Imagine this. Imagine what's happening when he hits this thing as he's out in his field and he finds this treasure. Like, it's all imagination. The kingdom of heaven is like a father who had two sons. And so there's all of these things that Jesus is doing, and he's making people feel something. This is what stories do. They make you feel something. Um, And this is what we see Jesus continually, continually doing. Um, If you want to see, by the way, a great um, way of thinking about image and imagination and feeling and mythic storytelling, there's a movie, I think it's a Tim Burton film called Big Fish. Um, Ewan McGregor is in it you will cry at the end. If you do not cry, you do not have a soul. (laughs) And Big Fish is um, just this beautiful, uh, beautiful picture of mythic storytelling, of the power of symbol, and how to think about imagination and feeling. And maybe when it comes to teaching our kids about faith, maybe we should begin asking, what are the role, what's the role of stories when it comes to our faith? I mean, think about this. Disney has the corner on the market when it comes to kids. And what do they do? They craft incredible stories. What stories are we telling our kids? Maybe we should consider what we find in the Gospels. But anyway, that's uh, 
enough on that one. So uh, last question, <laughs> why do we continue to be political in the midst of a pandemic? And you thought we'd get away with not talking about politics or the COVID-19 pandemic. But yes, um, let me just acknowledge this. It's amazing. And by amazing, I mean depressing. Uh, how political everything continues to be in this moment. I mean, you would think that when people are at risk and sick and dying, that maybe we would show up with our best selves. And by the way, let me point out, many people are. Many people are. Um, but there's so many politicians and so many people in the media and too many people on Facebook um, who just continue to fire away at their political opponents regarding the what and why and how of the coronavirus. Oh, it, yeah. So and this is what I would say, though. We should not be surprised whatsoever um, because every system is perfectly tailored to get the results it's getting. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this whole politic thing is going on because we've long been in process of giving our allegiance over not just to politics, but to partisan politics and giving our hearts over to the empire. Years ago, Greg Boyd, who's a pastor and author in Minneapolis, said the biggest threat to the kingdom of God is patriotism. And by the way, I agree with him fully, except today I would say the biggest threat to the kingdom is partisanship. Or maybe I should say the biggest threat to Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, that we would be one even as he and God are one, is partisanship. And let me be as clear as possible when I say this. And yes, I am fully aware that I've spoken about politics and partisanship on the podcast in the past. But the current state of our political discourse makes me want to vomit. Let me be clear makes me want to blow chunks. <laughs> um, it, it is, I used the word asinine earlier. That's what it is. It's, it's moronic. It's sophomoric. It's immature. It's adolescent. Um, it's like watching uh, a, a couple of nine and 10 year olds argue over whose dad is, is strongest. I mean, it, it is, yeah, I've said enough. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that's so upsetting beyond just the division and the immaturity is I've long talked about mixing the empire and the kingdom of heaven, meaning that we have long tried weaving the heart of Jesus into the notion of American exceptionalism. And over the years, when I talk about this, I've been accused of being un-American. If I say that we're not a Christian nation, I'm unpatriotic, and that's fine. Um, and maybe I've not been clear enough. What I'm speaking about when I talk about politics, not just the division side, but where we are as people of God, um, is I, I'm speaking against um, how the people of God have sold their souls to the global military superpower of the United States. I think that Christians ought to be the best citizens of whatever country they're a part of, but I don't believe that we're called first and foremost to a wild and total allegiance of any country um, including the United States. And by the way, here in the United States, it's not hard to see um, the way people think about God and country, because what I've experienced is that any criticism leveled against the United States um, brings about immediate and angry responses from all kinds of people. And I can say from experience, the same is not said when criticism comes, uh, or the same reaction is it's not equal when criticism comes against Christianity. Um, when I criticize the U.S., the reaction is way bigger and more harsh than when, when Christianity is criticized. Um, and 
I've experienced this because over the years I've offered commentary about God's heart for the immigrants, for example. Um, I've shared my opinion about how racism is indelibly sewn into the fabric of this nation. And I've asked if followers of a nonviolent Jesus should be found fervently supporting our military endeavors. Um, Now, I I realize that I have at times been more provocative (laughs) than I needed to be when I talk about those things. But I will also say... I have had people come close to attacking me, and I mean physically attacking me. (laughs) There was one time years ago, a guy came stumbling down an aisle. Like, he was so angry he could barely walk. I'm not kidding. And he got in my face and started yelling at me to leave his country. And this this is the funniest part. So there's a, for those of you, many of you know, a guy named Brian McLaren, who's an author, speaker, friend, incredible guy. He's been on the podcast, actually. And then there's Rob Bell. And uh, many of you know Rob Bell, also a uh, former preacher, pastor, author, uh, another guy that I know. And, <laughs> and he told me, he said, you can leave my country. You sound like Bruce McLaren and Ryan Bell. And I started laughing, which did not help the situation. But I was like, it's it's not Bruce McLaren or Ryan Bell. Anyway, um, but yeah, this guy really wanted to... like was almost bodying me up. Um, Another person one time when I was speaking about immigration said, if you love them so much, why don't we send you back with them? Like we're we're at this point talking, (laughs) we're recognizing that whatever mixture, toxic mixture of religion and country, God and empire, whatever it is, um, it, it sets people off. Now these are extreme examples, but I'm telling you, they are not the exception. And, uh, I mean, go ahead, try it out at your own risk. And, um, when I've criticized the church over the years by comparison, when I've called it the dark side of Christian history that we often like to ignore, when I've pointed toward how certain traditions alienate and exclude, the response from people comparably is, uh, is pretty muted and pretty tame. And, uh, I mean, just consider what happens in the hearts of Americans during election season. I mean, if we, if we put that much energy, and by that I mean, if we spent um, as much time reading and posting and interacting, if we put that much of our resources, our mental, emotional, financial resources, if the people of God put that much energy into providing for the poor and visiting the sick and the imprisoned and into our own transformative work, the world would be a different place. But instead, we use it all up around our, our particular candidate. And we, we don't give that kind of same energy and emotion into our faith, quite honestly, um, because I think we've given ourselves over to the empire a long time ago, and it seems normal now. Um, and not only have we given ourselves over to the empire, we're more and more increasingly partisan in our attitudes and our perspectives. I mean, it's as though we actually believe that if our preferred party is in power, then things will get solved and things will be better. And what we forget due to our willful ignorance and our fleeting memory, our propensity to ignore history except for that which flatters us, which by the way, is common American hubris, is that when it comes to the great movements that have brought equality in liberation, in healing, and by the way, we still have a long way to go when it comes to equality and liberation and healing, what we forget is those movements have rarely begun in the halls of government. 
They have begun in the hearts of the people in the streets. They've been birthed in relationship across difference in vulnerable places. They have been unleashed in the churches of the marginalized. And it's possible Maybe we just want to get our person elected so it frees us to go on doing whatever we want to do and we don't have to carry the responsibility. And so for us, it's just posting some biased perspective on social media before we get back to eating our lunch. Now we're preaching, aren't we? But this is where we are. The greatest social movements that have changed history do not begin with a bill or a politician. They begin with preachers, they begin with activists, they begin with the marginalized. That is what changes our world. And we've been duped. We've been duped into believing that somehow this partisan thing is the way things uh, should be. And I really believe we are so enmeshed in partisan politics that we identify with our party so deeply. And if we were students of history man, we'd have some measure of concern over this because the more dependent and supportive and identified we become with a political party, the easier it is for us to move toward unthinkable places. The more identified we become with a political party and a particular leader, the more likely it is for us to begin acting and believing and accepting their influence, their authority, and their power. It is actually a very dangerous place. This is what Walter Wink referred to as the domination system. And in our context, the domination system is made up of two parties, Republican and Democrat. And Walter Wink pointed out decades ago, he said, the domination system we live within teaches us what to believe. It offers us the acceptable beliefs that society at any given time declares to be credible. And this is where we are. We have been, our minds have been co-opted by the domination system, why either Republican or Democrat. And it's the Republican leaders or the Democratic leaders, depending on which one you are and depending on which leader in that particular party you follow, that, that teaches us what to believe, that tells us these are the acceptable beliefs that society um, at any given time declare. Um, declares to be credible. That ought to be concerning for us. That ought to wake us up to something else. And so if the domination system has co-opted our minds, it means that everything is not only political, but everything is partisan, even a pandemic, because the domination system has told us what to think about this. And it may well do us well in this moment to ask ourselves some questions with regard to the politics of a pandemic. Um, And by the way, some of those questions would be like, how do I begin to extricate myself from the domination system and stop allowing my mind to be co-opted by a Republican, by Democrats, by liberal media, by conservative media? Um, Other questions would be, how can I remain healthy? What new habits can I create while I'm practicing social distancing? What can we do to care for our neighbors? What is possible in this time that is not possible when things are normal? Um, And I think those things can help us move away from the partisan side of the pandemic. Um, And you can tell I'm passionate about this, (laughs) Um, probably more than anything else right now. Um, But yeah, and, and here would be another maybe practice that we can do, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum. Um, Maybe we ought to hold a measure of compassion for our, our political leaders. And this includes our current sitting president. Um, these are people who are being inundated 
with information, not only about a virus that we know very little about, but having to reshape a world and an economy um, in a time that nobody has ever been in before. So yeah, we can joke about like, um, you know, different announcements. For example, we get an announcement that there's an extended spring break for Denver public schools. And then the next day, it feels like we get an announcement that they're going to do online learning. And then we get another announcement that schools are going to be closed through this date. And then another announcement, no, they're going to be closed to this date. And then, oh, they're actually closed for the end of the year. And it can feel frustrating. And I've been frustrated by it to go, why can't you, why didn't you just say they're closed at the end, till the end of the year and do online learning earlier? Well, because none of us have ever been here. And they're getting information at warp speed about stuff they never expected to have to lead through. So how do we begin to have a measure of compassion for our political leaders, even those with whom we disagree? If for no other reason, we cannot begin to imagine all the information they are hit with every day. And don't hear me saying they're doing great or judging their performance. Simply, they're making decisions that carry a weight that none of us listening to this podcast, unless you are a high-ranking political official, none of us will have to carry. So I'm not sure if all of that answers the question, but it, um, but no matter what we are talking about these days, it gets partisan because that has become our foundation. That has become our starting point. And so maybe it's worth taking a step back and examining our own hearts, lives, attitudes, perspectives, and asking, what is our starting point for thinking and conversation? Um, is it political? Is it partisan? Is it empire? Or is it the heart and compassion and life and vision uh, that we witness in the historical Jesus? So anyway, man, I could keep going on that. Um, but hey, we're done. That's it. At least we're done for now. Um, and I could do this all day. I honestly, I love the questions that you send in. And I have more questions um, from several of you. And so maybe there'll be another episode in the future, but for today, that is it. The episode 56 of the changing faith podcast, religious appropriation, parenting through deconstruction, revelation, and the politics of a pandemic. That title is just too good to not read it a second time. So with that said, um, I look forward to seeing you, to being with you again on the next episode of the changing faith podcast. But until that time, my friends, as always, much love and peace be with you.